In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Amen. Good morning. This may seem like a fairly obvious statement to you, but nobody likes rejection. Uh, I'm sure that all of us can say that it, at one time or another, in one way or another, we have experienced rejection. I can still remember very vividly uh, when I was a senior in high school opening the mailbox to find that the University of Virginia had mailed me the thin envelope. I remember jobs that I applied for and did not get, girlfriends that I applied for and did not get. You know, those things stick with you, don't they? I, I, I can remember a time in, uh, when I was uh, a, a priest in Birmingham, Alabama, and I preached a sermon that was really meaningful to a lot of people, dozens, really, of compliments uh, that I got on it, and one very angry piece of criticism. Uh, which, which is the one, which, what, is, what sticks out to me about all that, right? I've, I'm totally over it, but... Um, <laughs> rejection is a part of life, but it is a bad part of life. It's a bad part. I mean, I feel like being a telemarketer would just be the worst job in the world, right? I mean, every time, hey, I'd like to sell you click, you know, or I, I guess not click anymore, but... You can't hang up angrily anymore uh, like that. But, you know, it's just no fun to be rejected at all. And and enough rejection can challenge your sense of who you are. And when someone sort of acquiesces, when they come to expect rejection, come to be fine with rejection, we know something's wrong. That is a position that is uh, both to be pitied And on some level, surely, a position that we can relate to. But what about when you're the one who's doing the rejecting? I mean, that kind of depends on the situation. You know, it's never, it's not, it's not good. It's not a good situation. We have to, you know, tell a candidate that we like that they're not the right fit for a a position that we have, or we have to have that conversation. It's not you. It's me. You know, it's that's those are those are hard. But you know, sometimes rejecting people can be sort of we can kind of get a charge out of it. You know, I mean, like, I, I was never much of a basketball player, but a power forward, it looks pretty awesome when he's swatting a, a ball of the puny little point guard into the 10th row. You know, that, that looks great. Um, when you're the one hanging up on the, on the telemarketer, that sometimes feels good. When you're the one who is writing the comments in basically any online news article, that can feel good. You know, in middle school, I mean, rejection, it was like a sport. You know, it was, I, would have, I would have lettered all three years on the middle school varsity rejection team, uh, mo- mostly as a recipient. But I, I played a little offense, too. Um, I, we, we had, we all, we, it's, all ha- it's happened to all of us, right? We've all done it in one way or another. It's been done to us. Sometimes it's not personal. It's business. Sometimes it is justifiable and necessary Sometimes it's just downright mean, right? And no matter the situation, nobody likes to be rejected. So why uh, all this talk about rejection? It's because in both of our passages, the major theme is rejection. In our Old Testament passage from 1 Samuel, uh, we see the Israelites 
rejecting the kingship of God over them, even though they are told that it's going to be so much worse for them. They want to be like all the other nations. And clearly, God says they have rejected Him. Now, we're going to spend our time in the gospel passage. And we see the religious establishment, in one sense, the heirs of those who had rejected God's kingship many centuries before. We see them in similar fashion rejecting Jesus in all His goodness, saying that His ability to cast out demons actually comes from Satan, not from God. At least for me, though, the most arresting verse in this passage on rejection actually kind of goes the other direction. Not us rejecting God, but Jesus pronounces this unforgivable sin, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and promises that God will reject all who commit that sin. And and that leaves me wondering, leaves me anxious, leaves me running back through the archives in my mind, have I committed that sin? Have I blasphemed the Holy Spirit? Am I going to get God's thin envelope? It's our innate fear, I think, of rejection that has has us lifting this verse out of its context, uh, and and that just causes all sort of anxiety and worry. Am I going to make it? Have I done it it wrong? So we want to take very good care uh, to put this verse back into its context and understand if this verse leaves us with any hope. Spoiler alert, yes, it does. So, Jesus is in this great big crowd. It's such a big crowd, the text says, that, that they, he and his disciples could not even eat. And I don't know what that means, really. I, if it was, uh, there was they, they, they couldn't sit down or they were so busy with the crowd, I, it's, it, they, couldn't, they couldn't even reach in their bags. I'm not sure what that means. I, I, I can eat pretty much anywhere. But um, we... we uh, you know, I, I picture this crowd, there's sort of, um, like you see in the movies maybe, the crowded, dusty, Middle Eastern market. There's pushing and shoving, everybody's shoulder to shoulder, lots of yelling. There's a chicken clucking somewhere, and, and there's this, atten- everybody's vying for the attention of the great teacher, this great healer, right? And at least part of the crowd is hostile to Jesus. Uh, they're saying that Jesus is out of his mind, and that worries Mary, Jesus' mother, and, and also Jesus' siblings. They want to get him out of there. They have a fear that he will be rejected, they, uh, but they can't get to him because of this crowd. So then Mark, who's our author, he, he takes his, his camera lens and zooms us right into the middle of the crowd, right into uh, where the turbulence where we see the scribes and the Pharisees who came from Jerusalem to check out this Jesus who's so popular among the riffraff. And right away, what they're saying is he's a fake. Maybe worse than that. That he who would claim to be holy, that he who would claim to be from God, that he's actually a messenger of Satan. And now this is not just a a statement that's a matter of opinion, right? This isn't tomato, tomato, Yanni or Laurel. This is, this is uh, you know, they, these are the designated keepers of the law of God. And they are saying that this Jesus, who is claiming to be aligned with God and all His pureness, all His holiness, all His goodness, that He was in fact the opposite 
of God, right? Now, believe it or not, and that may seem offensive to some of us, but that's actually a fairly reasonable conclusion. In fact, 75 years ago, C.S. Lewis said in a radio broadcast uh, that, that there were actually only three possible opinions about Jesus, and one of them was that he was demonic. This is what C.S. Lewis said. He said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. Uh, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral, t- moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That, says Lewis, is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come away with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left us that option. So these scribes and Pharisees have looked Jesus in the eye and concluded that he's not insane. And and yet they couldn't possibly conclude that he was the Son of God. And so then, therefore, he must cast out demons because he is one of the demons. And Jesus responds by saying something that we all know to be true. A house divided cannot stand. We know that from our own houses, from our own families, uh, from our own churches, from our own nation. And they could have looked at the world around them just as we can now and easily see that the kingdom of darkness was not divided. It was, uh, it, it was not caving in on itself. It was advancing. And they didn't have school shootings and terrorism like we have or opioid and suicide epidemics perhaps, but they did have political dysfunction. They had systemic social injustice. And they had all sorts of things then like we do now and the kingdom of darkness was clearly unified and was advancing and therefore it was not divided and so if it was not divided he could not be casting out demons by being one and so Jesus who's clearly not a lunatic points to both the obvious unity of the kingdom of Satan and his casting out of demons and rules out C.S. Lewis's second option right he can't be he's not a lunatic and he's not a devil so he must be what the Lord He's who he says he is. And it is, friends, that's the context. That's is from that position, that, that position of authority, that he speaks to those who have called him evil. He speaks right to those who have called him evil. Now, I think the translation we have in our bulletin soft pedals a little bit. I think the ESV does a little better, and this is what it says. Truly I say to you, Anytime you see that uh, Jesus say, truly I say to you, it's a solemn expression and you need to pay attention. Uh, All sins will be forgiven the children of man. I mean, the children of humanity. All sins will be forgiven humanity and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. That's a big statement. And in fact, it's one that has caused a lot of fear Uh, in a lot of folks. So we're going to take it in two parts. 
And we'll start with the second part first. What is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Given the context of the conversation, which is the accusation of the scribes that Jesus was evil, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is clearly the defiant declaration that God is evil and that evil is good. In other words, to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit is to reject the godness of God. And so as long as you do that, as long as you reject the godness of God, uh, you are simply just, you're not making yourself available to the forgiveness of sins. I mean, you see what Jesus is saying, right? It, 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 there's only one, for, one source for the forgiveness of sins, and as long as you're calling that source evil, you simply cannot be forgiven. You're not availing yourself of that forgiveness. It would be like being thirsty and yet refusing to turn on the faucet. You know, it's, you simply cannot taste the sweetness of what's offered uh, if you're in that position. And, and yet Jesus, if you look at the text, Jesus has not excluded the possibility of repentance. I mean, I've had people in my office who were worried that they were suffering as an adult. Perhaps it was because of something they said when they were a teenager or when they were a child. Maybe they blasphemed the Holy Spirit. I mean, there might have been a time where you rejected God. But I want to say, we've all rejected God. I mean, that is the condition that we were born into. We, we, uh, that's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus died and rose again. We've all rejected God. And now, by God's grace, you're seeking Him. I mean, if that's where you find yourself this morning. By God's grace, we're seeking Him. And so you have ceased to reject Him. You have ceased to resist the godness of God. And therefore, you are not guilty of this sin. Or, or maybe a better way to say that is, that sin has been forgiven. As long as you are resisting the godness of God, you just can't be available uh, to forgiveness. But once you allow God to be God, then you can receive that forgiveness. In fact, if you're seeking Christ, all your sins have been forgiven. You don't need to worry. In fact, that's what Jesus says in the first part of the verse. All sins will be forgiven. And whatever blasphemies you utter will all be forgiven. All sins will be forgiven. Many years ago, the very first bishop of Liverpool, England, his name was J.C. Ryle, he commented on that promise, all sins will be forgiven. He writes, these words fall lightly on the ears of many people. They see no particular beauty in them. But to the person who is alive to his own sinfulness and is deeply aware of his need of mercy, these words are sweet and precious. All sins will be forgiven. The sins of youth and age. The sins of head, hand, tongue, and imagination. The sins against all God's commandments. The sins of persecutors like Saul. The sins of idolaters like Manasseh. The sins of open enemies of Christ like the Jews who crucified Him. The sins of backsliders from Christ like Peter. All may be forgiven. 
The blood of Christ can cleanse all away. The righteousness of Christ can cover all and hide all from God's eyes. The doctrine here laid down is the crown and glory of the gospel. The very first thing it proposes to us is free pardon, full forgiveness, complete remission without money and without price. I mean, isn't that that beautiful? The crown and glory of the gospel is that though we have rejected God, that God has not rejected us. Jesus said in John chapter 6, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And here he says, all sins will be forgiven. And so if you're in Christ, I mean, if you're seeking Christ, if, if you want Christ, you can be assured that Jesus says, all your sins will be forgiven. And whoever does the will of God, Jesus says, he is my brother and my sister. No matter how you rejected God years ago, you don't have to worry if somehow you tripped the censor. No matter if you still wonder if you are going to get that thin envelope, God has not rejected you. That is the gospel. Now, if you're not sure, you're here this morning, you think, I'm pretty thirsty, but I don't know about turning on that faucet. Let me assure you that what you will find there is a rush of sweet refreshment, a fountain of grace, complete acceptance. All sins will be forgiven. Let's just finish with a prayer. Heavenly Father, what a wondrous promise that all sins will be forgiven, even the blasphemies we utter. Let us not be found to be rejecting you and therefore unavailable to your forgiveness, but let us open our hearts to your nature, your mercy, your grace that we may be assured of your promise that all sins will be forgiven. Amen.